How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Leasley in Context. We are in the midst of a little series called Benchmarks, where Michael is teaching on certain benchmark passages in his life. And last week, Michael started a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. So last week, Benchmark 4 was the first sermon on the Holy Spirit. This week will be the second, and next week will be the third, and that will conclude our Benchmark series. But until then, let's jump into Michael teaching on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads, guides, teaches, and instructs. My argument to you is going to be, it better have the authority of the Word of God behind it, not just your or my experience. That's the principle. You may disagree with me. That's fine. This is where I'm coming from, because I'm going to trust and lean on the text, not experience. I'm going to trust and lean on what God said, not how I feel about it. I'm going to trust and lean on the very Word of God that He spoke from time eternal, that it's still true today, because my experience, my reality, the way things, quote, work out in life are not inerrant. They aren't without sin co-opting it. And so you and I need to think just common sense sometimes. Now, the problem with this is, and if you're thinking ahead of me, is, well, Michael, you're a functional deist. And what I mean by that is, I believe God, but I live my life apart from any spiritual influence in my life. So, for example, what's the one experience we all love to hear about and we all like to know, how did you come to faith in Christ? We might say, we want to hear your testimony. One of the best questions you can ask when you go out to lunch or dinner with someone is, tell me how you came to Christ. They're great stories, always. Even if they're a little bit, you know, Walk the aisle, pray the prayer, like Cindy says. She says, I wish I had a great story. I was five years old. I came to Christ. I'm like, I wish I'd have come to Christ at five. It took me a long time to learn who Jesus was. But we have stories, and we love to hear those stories. Oftentimes there's an experience. Something bad happened, or they were in college and they were lonely, or their heart was broken, or their mom died, and there was some experience that pulled them who is God? And someone happened to be there to explain the gospel to them. Are those not experiences? Sure. I'm happy to hear those stories. I love to hear stories how you came to Christ. Now, Michael, if you carry this out, then why don't you like to hear stories about how the Holy Spirit leads, guides, teaches, and instructs me? That's a really good question. That's a very important question. And if I say I don't care, I'm a functional deist. It's okay for you to have an experience when you came to Jesus, no more. You see the flaw in my thinking here? So to, to sort of preempt that, what I'm saying is our experiences must be measured and weighted by what? And I would add wisdom. Because Scripture talks in great depth about seeking wisdom. There's a little book called Proverbs that's essentially about the way of wisdom or the way of wickedness. That's what the book is about. And you're to seek wisdom. 
And the beautiful part about being a Christian is that that wisdom can come from the authority of Scripture, not my experience. Well, let's dig into this a little bit. Last weekend, I talked uh, two weeks ago about the work of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about he teaches, he testifies, he guides, he leads, he convicts, he regenerates, um, he intercedes, and on occasion he, is, uh, he commands things. We also talked about his personality and how it's important to understand the Trinitarian doctrine that the Holy Spirit isn't some also-ran part of God. That's modalism. Modalism would be the illustration of an egg or water. Water can be frozen, it can be solid, a liquid, it can be a vapor, steam. That's called modalism. That's a bad way to explain the Trinity. So the way we want to explain the Trinity is the way the Scripture gives it to us. And he's talked about as a person who can be grieved. He's a person who can be blasphemed against. He's a person who can be lied to. And that again was two weeks ago. We went in some depth to talk about both his work and his personality. Today I want to talk about two broad stroke things. Broad stroke. Number one, how he's described. Let's talk about this to begin with. How is he described? And again, I want to reference, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, these are just what I call single-volume theologies. There are all kinds of them. We put them on the slides a couple of weeks ago, probably five or six of them. This is by Paul Enns. Happens to be the one Moody published, the Moody Handbook of Theology. This one is by Charles Ryrie called Basic Theology. Super easy to read. Super easy to wrap your arms around. Of course, some of you are Wayne Grudem fans. Grudem's is, is that big, and uh, people aren't going to get through it. Very few are. Uh, it's a great text. It's just a lot for most people. It's this mat theology. Uh, Floyd Brackman's, L. Wells' book, uh, Some Lean Reformed, all kinds of nuances. But these, essentially, you grew up with the World Book Encyclopedia. How many of you are old enough to have a Collier's set of encyclopedias? Only a few of us. My dad had a collier set of encyclopedia. Each one of them weighed like 37 pounds. And the font was like a four-point font. And it went on in Latin and German and French in the body of the encyclopedia. And my father, whenever he'd ask a question in my home, this is easily growing up, I'd say, Dad, uh, you know, maybe it was biology or something. What's, uh, you know, what's photosynthesis? Get the encyclopedia. That was like being sent to the principal's office. Oh, gosh. And the Colliers were on this bookcase he had. And you know the one that he wanted me to bring back? Not the one with photosynthesis, P. What book did he want me to bring? The last one, which was the index. You ever opened an index to a Collier encyclopedia? Just put a gun to your head. It's easier. <laughs> I mean, it's, it just goes on for days and days. And you go back and you say, one volume. I need one volume. And the Holy Spirit is a great illustration of why these single handbooks of theology are so helpful. How are you going to explain the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How are you going to explain the indwelling? How are you going to integrate what tongues is and is not? How are you going to understand the sign, gifts, and wonders? And are they real today or are they not? You're not going to do that based on Bible study alone. You need, an in, you need an encyclopedia to guide you to those passages and help you understand in context what's going on. Okay? So you ought to have a real Bible to take notes in. You ought to have a single volume handbook of theology. And much of what I'm sharing you is not original study. It comes from an amalgamation of these authors that have gone before. Um, let's start off first with the first description of the Holy Spirit is He's one who clothes 
C-L-O-T-H-E-S, clothed us with power. This is from Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Luke 24, 49. This is the end of the Emmaus Road. It's the end of the Gospel of Luke. He's with his 11 closest friends. Remember, he's dead, buried, resurrected, and he's showing up kind of interestingly. He walks through walls. He has a charcoal dinner going. On the road to Emmaus, he freaks out these two disciples. Well, this is after all that. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, 49, we read, Behold, Christ speaking to the eleven, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power. There it is, Luke 24, 49. Clothed with power from on high. His instruction was the Holy Spirit of promise was going to come to them. In this injunction, instruction, he's telling them, you're going to be clothed with power. Think about putting on you know, uh, police officers uh, today. Most of them wear vests. And they get up in the morning and they wear certain undergarments that help with sweat and cooling and perspiration and so forth and comfort. And they got to be big enough. And depending on their duty, they're smart to wear a Kevlar vest of some kind. And then they have to put their uniform on top of it. Then they have a belt. And that belt helps hold weight because you're distributing a gun, a flashlight, probably mace, handcuffs, some ammo. So you need to be clothed to go out to do your job. Make sense? So Christ is saying, you need to wait because my Father is going to clothe you, interestingly, with power. Most of you know Acts 1.8. If not, it's a key verse you should know very well. Acts 1.8, Jesus telling them, you will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. This promise of Acts 1.8 was... After I'm dead, you're going to have to wait 49 days to Pentecost. And that's what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. They're to wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with this power that he's going to send to them. So John 14, 15, 16, 18, that is the so-called upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, i got to go to send a helper to you. Now, hear me carefully on this because you can't be better than Christ. You can't be better than any of the Godhead. But what Jesus is kind of saying is, I need to go because I'm going to send you a better helper. The better helper isn't like higher rank or superlative. It's he's going to indwell you permanently. Where I'm around you and I can be here and I can do things and I can teach you and be with you, this one's going to live in you. And he's the spirit of Christ. So it's better for me to ascend to the Father so I can dispatch the Holy Spirit. Is that just some kind of crazy made-up thing? No, it's called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant fulfilled the entire corpus of the Old Testament, what it could not accomplish apart from the Spirit's indwelling. And there's going to be a new covenant I'm going to make with you, not like the old ones which your fathers couldn't keep. I'm going to give you a new one, and part of that new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is teaching them at the end of Luke, you're going to be clothed with power from on high, 
He says the same thing to them in the upper room. In Acts chapter 1, it's recorded, you'll receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the first way, one of the ways he's described is he's clothing us with power. Secondly, dove. Now this to me is a very important passage and one that we need to spend a little bit of time on to get a good picture of it. When Jesus is baptized, this critical event is in all four Gospels. We have the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's the outlier. And John doesn't always record, right, the things that the synoptics tend to record. Luke, of course, is the longest gospel. Mark is the oldest, the shortest, and the hardest in some respects. Matthew's point is about the kingdom of God. And John is, what's John? John's a head-scratcher. It's the simplest Greek in the New Testament and the most rich theology of a gospel at the same time. It's a beautiful, beautiful gospel. What's the point of the Gospel of John? It's been written. It's it's the one book in the Bible that tells us precisely why it was written. In John chapter 30, verse 21, this was written so that you might believe. And the word believe pops up in the Gospel of John all over the place. So all of the Gospel writers, God the Father, big A, has the little A authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write down the account of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these four passages. I'll repeat them several times again if you want to capture them. You don't have to, just for those of you that like to take notes for reinforcement. Matthew 3.16 is the first one. Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting, L-I-G-H-T, lighting upon him, Matthew 3.16. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. Same incident. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So Matthew 3.16, he's descending as a dove. Mark 1.10, descending a dove like a dove. Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Luke adds bodily form. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And then finally, John's record, John 1.32. So we have Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, Luke 3.22, and finally, John 1.32. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. So we have four eyewitness accounts. Matthew's a little different story, but four accounts of what they saw. All of them record this in the storyline. Sidebar. John's baptism is different than the New Testament. You know this probably, just as a review. John's baptizing for repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's the forerunner. And he's the one that goes out, and he's out in the wilderness a little bit, south of the city of Jerusalem, and he says, he's coming. Messiah's coming. We would say it in our vernacular, get your act together because Jesus is coming back. That was John's baptism. And he's baptizing for the repentance of sin. So pious, God-fearing Jews that weren't keeping the law, that weren't going to festivals, that weren't keeping Passover, weren't giving their tithe, they're feeling guilty, just like Christians feel guilty when somebody talks about something you're not doing, right? Oh, I need to do that. I need to do better. And so what happens? John says, repent. 
because he's coming. And they're going out by the thousands, it seems. Hundreds, surely, I would argue thousands, to be baptized by John. And Jesus comes along and he goes, I'm not worthy to touch his foot. And what does Jesus, what does he, Jesus say? Permit it at this time that it will be fulfilled. So this is a pivotal baptism. It's different than the New Testament baptism. When John baptizes Jesus, this is what we read. The dove descends from heaven, and the voice says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, Luke 3.22, and John 1.32. Why am I harping on this? When I, when I conduct a baptism, I typically talk about one of these. Because this passage, let's say, cements the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. Because Jesus is going to say in the Great Commission, make disciples of all ethnos, what? Baptizing them. Why in the world are you supposed to get wet? What's the point of this ritual of getting wet? I mean, this is some religious mumbo-jumbo, get wet. It's the completion of what Jesus said was going to happen from the mikvahs in the Old Testament, the, the ceremonial cleansing, to what Christ is fulfilling and he says, the way you do this to make them a disciple is to baptize them. What does that mean? Is it about the mode, the amount of water, how old you are? We get all in the weeds on the wrong issues. All these passages are giving us the same clear message. Four observations. Number one, this is God's Holy Spirit. He is part of the Trinitarian Godhead. He's not an all-saran, he's not a lesson. Number two, the dove descended from heaven. Every passage says descending as a dove, like a dove descending. Descended upon him bodily, descended as a dove. All three of them use the word descending. Third, as a dove, it's so important to understand this phrase, or like a dove. A bird did not land on Jesus' head. When you see uh, animations that are done for children, uh, the Methodist church uses the beautiful symbol of a dove lighting. I'm not anti those symbols. But a bird did not land on Jesus' head. The text is clear, but we just need to look at it. It says every time, as a dove, as a dove, like a dove. So you know my penchant for Steven Spielberg-esque. Steven Spielberg-esque, the way he depicts spirits with CGI, is to me a very carefully, quotations, write it in pencil. It's an illustration of what it might have looked like for the Holy Spirit to descend in bodily form upon Jesus. A bird did not land on Jesus' head. That's not what the text says. It says the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove. So we envision this, just for illustration's sake, a CGI spirit, I would argue, of a man's shape, that much look much, much like Jesus that descends upon him. That's not even the important part of the story. The important part of the story is the word of God for the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Later he'll say, listen to him. What's happened at this baptism of Jesus Christ? God the Father identified him as his son. This one is my son. I'm going to prove it from the voice of God from heaven. I'm going to prove it from the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And I'm going to prove, uh, prove it because of the Trinitarian Godhead you're seeing here. He's not an also-ran. He's not less than, less than God. And that's where the Trinity doctrine can get us real gummed up. 
Just as a side, side, sidebar, um, I interviewed uh, Phil Carey for the second time. I think I told you all a few weeks back I interviewed him on his delightful little book about anxious Christians. He's also got a theology book we, we just captured it this week. Delightful guy to talk to. But in both the little popular book and his theology book, he makes a big issue about the Trinitarian doctrine. And I had a chance to ask him, but Dr. Carey, why, why is this so important in combating what, what I would call liberalism or what I would call the, you know, the church that's run amok today? And he would say, apart from the Trinitarian doctrine, there is no salvation. I've been saying that for years, but he put it in print. He's more important than me. <laughs> apart from the Trinitarian doctrine, there is no salvation. And that begins, that's the crux. And Jesus is, in these three, four passages, is the example of God speaking this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You're baptized going forward to what? Identify with him. If God the Father spoke to identify his son with the Trinitarian around him, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, that's my son. Listen to him. I'm identifying as my son. When Jesus is make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, by the way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And boy, churches have gone crazy with this. You got to do it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Truly, some churches. I was in Israel years ago. I told the story where a guy was doing it like this. Father, Spirit, the Son. I mean, he was just like brutalizing his people. I guess that made it more important. I don't know. It was fun to watch. Um, some do forward. Some do backwards. Some immerse. Some sprinkle. Ay, 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 ay. Where have we gone with this? He's baptized to identify. That's the theology behind the mode. Well, it's God's spirit. He descended from heaven. He is identifying him, and he descends like a dove. Third, pledge. So we've talked about clothe. We've talked about this, um, uh, this dove descending. Now let's talk about pledge. It's a very important term. Two passages. 2 Corinthians 1.22 2 Corinthians 1.22 and Ephesians 1.14. This describes, the again, what are we talking about? The Holy Spirit's personality. How is he described in the Bible? He's described as a pledge. 2 Corinthians 1.22. Also, he sealed us, which we'll talk about that word in a moment, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 2 Corinthians 1.22. And then Ephesians 1.14 who has given us as a pledge of our inheritance, a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now this word is a fun word. It means an installment. It means a down payment. It means a deposit. If you buy a home or a car or a motorcycle or a boat, and let's say you went to the if it was a car or, or whatever, you, went, you weren't really sure you were going to buy it right then and there. Um, but what do you do? You put down a deposit. You put down a check for $1,000 to hold that car, to hold that boat, hold that motorcycle, and I'm going to come back. Of course, I'm going to pay cash. But I'm going to come back. That's my first installment. It's a placeholder, and I'm going to come back and pay for this. That's exactly what this word means. So th- hear this again. He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians 1.14, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. So it gets expanded a little bit. So when you trusted Jesus Christ, you got this permanent roommate called the Holy Spirit of God, and he indwells you permanently, and yet he's nothing but, 
shouldn't say that. He's the beginning of an installment of what God is going to do for you, paid in full. It's a deposit of God's work in your life. Listen again to Paul in Ephesians. A pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption to the praise and glory of his name. So this installment is, I'm, I'm going to put a placeholder here, and I'm going to promise you, the Holy Spirit of promise, I'm going to promise you when you die, you're going to receive an inheritance. And that inheritance is the ultimate redemption. Fourth, oil. Oil is used to describe the Holy Spirit. This is actually a, uh, it's an interesting metaphor in, in, in admission of both learning and not studying. I, this was a deep hole for me, no pun intended. Uh, I studied oil till I was kind of tired of it. You go back to Ephesians 40 and you go back to um, Zechariah, there's some interesting passages about what oil is and isn't. Uh, to, to put it in a sentence or two, oil was an anointing, an acknowledgement. It seems as though the picture of oil is this pouring down from above imagery that's anointing or setting someone aside for something. So if we carry that out, that the Holy Spirit is like this, then He's being poured out in a sense. And that again would tie back to the new covenant. I must press on. Five is seal, the word seal. This is one that's heavy laden. Uh, a couple of passages back to Ephesians 1.13 as I promised you in Him also after listening, Ephesians 1.13, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, seal has a number of nuances. It identifies ownership. It means it's authentic. Um, any of you have a class ring or a family signet ring? If you go back in history, the etymology of the Latin word, sigillium, uh, was a word that moves in Latin to English, signet. And you remember, if any of you watched those... Uh, I don't, I don't watch Pride and Prejudice movies, but those kind of movies, do they use the wax and the thing in Pride and Prejudice, those old, you know, that, that period piece movie? What, what's that saying? This is authentic. I wrote this and I put my seal on it, and the seal can only be broken by what? The recipient. So if an official document was sealed by the signet of a Roman official, that carried the weight of the Roman governor. Same word is used on the tomb, right? When Jesus dies, they ask for a seal. No one better tamper with it. So the Romans come and affix a seal to the tomb. Uh, that, that, that seal, that signet ring is a great, I mean, that's the emblem of my school. That means I went there. I'm identified with it. I have an alignment to it. And I'm sealed authentically, ownership. I remember when I got my degree, they said, you are granted all the rights and privileges of your degree. And I go, what does that mean? You going to give me money or something? I'm granted rights and privileges? I can say I went to this school? Big whoop. I mean, what's the... But no, it's important. It's authenticating. It's a seal. It's demonstrating you're identified authentically with that. Um, just a sidebar in Ephesians 4.30, it also is a nuance or a lesson of eternal security. Listen again, you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
When you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, trusted Christ, said the right things, when you believed he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead, and you're putting your trust in Christ alone, you're believing in him that he died on your behalf, in your place instead of you. When you trust him for that, you're given a free gift called eternal life, you're forgiven of your sins, and you're made a new creation in Christ, and the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's the seal, the proof of the pudding, that you walk the aisle, pray the prayer, you know, you trusted Christ by faith. I don't mean to sound pejorative when I use those expressions, walk the I'm not against those, but those are means that many of us might have identity to that I, when I was four years old. When I was ten, I walked the aisle. I went down front, those type of imageries that we are accustomed to. Well, we must move on. Th- these are just a few. Clothe, dove, pledge, oil, seal, and fire, wind, and water, which sounds like a band. Uh, and we have other things that go along with it. I don't have time to to address, but I do want to speak briefly about this one passage in John 3, verse 8. This is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. It's a great translation. People miss the, they know the story too well. It's the law colliding with Jesus. Nicodemus is a priest. We might say he's a scribe, he's a Pharisee. He knows the law of God, and he's scratching his head about this Jesus, and he comes to Jesus at night. There's been children's books and songs about Nicodemus at night. Uh, but he comes in chapter 3, verse 8. The wind, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a very interesting imagery that Jesus talks about the Spirit's working. You can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't monitor it. You know where it's coming from. You know where it's going. That's his whole point. And Nicodemus is still scratching his head about this new birth. But the imagery is the new birth happens because of the Spirit's movement. Well, I need to stop. I had a lot more to say, but we got to stop. I want to give you a, a concluding thought. So I've told this story before. Repetition is important in learning. Uh, when Cindy and I got married, I got engaged, I had a friend who was a gemologist. How many of you heard me tell this story? Oh, I feel better already. Uh, and so my gemologist said, listen, I'll get you a diamond for a lot less than you'll pay for it at the jewelry store. What's not to like? So I met him in the student center, and he pulled out a bag of diamonds, and he put them on a black cloth, like rock candy. He dumped them out, and he had an eight-powered loop, that little monocular thing. And he was looking at them. And he took these, these over, and he pulled out about four or five. And he said, okay, look at these. And I'm, what am I looking at? And, well, this one's clear, completely clear. This one's got a pretty good-sized crack in it. By the way, you can only use a certain power. I think it's eight or ten for a gemologist. You can't use a, a more powerful magnifier because every diamond's full of flaws. Every diamond's got issues because there's they're, a mineral. So he's he, he, eight power. And so he holds them up and he goes, this one has a lot of color. This one has too many cuts. Cut, clarity, character, whatever they are. There's the C's or K's, the cut, the carrot, the clarity, the color, I don't know. Uh, I forgot all that. But anyway, so we're looking at these diamonds. And we pick, he goes, I like these three or four. I'm like, okay, how much are they? Well, this one is you know, $1,275, this one's $3,600. Go, Tommy, where's the price tag? How can you just randomly say that diamonds were $3,600? And he says, I'm a gemologist. What's he saying? I know diamonds. This is my world. You see, in 
a passage that's rarely ever taught is in 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and following. And you can look at it on your own. But it, Paul talks about he who is spiritual appraises all things, but he who is not spiritual cannot appraise them because he is spiritually appraised. What this circuitous language is saying is you have to be able to understand what you're looking at through a loop to know what that diamond's worth. You need lots of training in gemology. You need to be certified as a gemologist, as a diamond appraiser, before you can ascribe a value to it. You need to understand the Holy Spirit in your life is the one who gives you the value of Scripture. When you read this, one of the most important ministries of the Spirit of God is, you read it and it stops you and you go, oh my word. Or you go, I'm convicted. Or you go, that gives me joy. Or if you're like me, you go, this is driving me crazy right now. What does this mean? But the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to ascribe value to the passage. Does that make sense? To me, this is the one issue the Holy Spirit is so overlooked and maligned and neglected. Forget the experiential theology, what the Holy Spirit told you or led you or guided you. Set that aside because the Bible is not clear on those issues. The Bible is very clear that the Spirit indwells the believer and gives you and me the ability to appraise things of value. So when I read something that's not the Bible, I can sift through it. That's wisdom, that's God's Word, and that's God's Spirit. And the illustration I've used many times, you read a book by a person that doesn't believe anything about God, but writes a really good book, and don't believe any of it, they're spiritually appraised. They don't know what they're reading. But a Christian reads that book, and they go, oh my. A believer reads that passage in, in, in Isaiah 40 and goes, oh my word. God makes judges nothing. I'm glad. Because some judges are nothing. I'm glad. And I can't wait for the day he sets it all straight. The believer has the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling in me so that we put value to what we read. Ecclesia Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Tycho.